Last week, Kathleen preached a marvelous uh, sermon on the tree or, or the man that delights in the law of the Lord from Psalm 1 who is planted like a tree beside the stream yielding fruit in its season. And then uh, two weeks ago, the week before that, I preached about a story that Jesus told toward the end of his ministry about the man who built his house on a rock. And it turns out that the man who builds the house is Jesus, and the house that he builds is us, and the rock on which he builds the house is himself. Jesus is the rock. And today we're going to look at a story that comes from the end of Jesus' ministry that's in all three synoptic gospels, and Jesus is still talking about the rock. He tells the story at the temple, which was built on the foundation stone. That's the, what they call the foundation stone. Currently, it's found in the dome of the rock shrine on the temple mount. The Jews believe it was the stone on which God made Adam and on which Abraham almost sacrificed Isaac. Adam, mankind, is founded upon the rock. Around 600 BC, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon had a troubling dream, and nobody could translate it, nobody could understand it or interpret it, except for a young Jewish exile named Daniel. In the dream, the king saw this image standing like a giant statue. Daniel tells the king that it represents four empires, traditionally understood as Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. Rome's represented by the feet and the ten toes. The king King then saw a great stone cut from a mountain by no human hand. It falls to the earth, strikes the image at the feet, destroying the image and growing into a great mountain, a kingdom that fills the entire earth. In Jesus' day, people believed that stone to be the Messiah. And they figured that it was just about time for that stone to hit. In Malachi 3, the last book in your Old Testament, Malachi prophesies the Messiah's coming. Now, Christ is just the, the Greek translation of the Hebrew word Messiah. So it's fair to think of the religious Jews of Jesus' day as Christians. I mean by that that they eagerly awaited the coming of the Messiah, the, the cornerstone, the Christ, as he's called in Psalm 118, uh, the rock that fills the whole earth in Daniel 2, the Lord who comes to his temple on the foundation stone after a messenger who looks like John the Baptist prepares the way, Malachi 3.1. Behold, I will send my messenger and he shall prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek shall suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant whom ye delight in. Behold, he shall come, saith the Lord of hosts, but who may abide the day of his coming? And who shall stand when he appeareth? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap, and he shall sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he shall purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver that they may offer unto the Lord an offering in righteousness." They eagerly waited for his coming in Jesus' day, believing that he would destroy the kingdoms of this world and establish the kingdom of Israel forever. And now Christians eagerly await his coming today. They say he will obliterate the kingdoms of this world after rapturing good Christians out of this world and out of tribulation. And so we picture his coming as something like this. 
the glorious appearing of the Left Behind series, uh, Jesus has already raptured faithful Christians out of this earth and now he is destroying sinners. Page 178, God knew that eventually sinners would grow weary of their own poverty, but his patience had a limit. There came a time when enough was enough. His patience had, had a limit. In other words, the steadfast love of the Lord ceases and his mercies do come to an end, at least according to Tim LaHaye and, and, and uh, uh, this Jenkins guy. Anyway, page 208, and that sword from his mouth, the powerful word of God itself continued to slice through the air, reaping the wrath of God's final judgment. To this very minute, God had offered forgiveness, reconciliation, redemption, salvation, but except for that now tiny remnant of Israel that was seen for the first time, the one whom they had pierced, it was too late. Page 226, their innards and entrails gushed to the desert floor, and as those around them turned to run, they too were slain, their blood pooling and rising in the unforgiving brightness of the glory of Christ. Isn't that an incredible phrase? The unforgiving brightness of the glory of Christ. What is the glory of Christ? Is it? Unforgiveness? Well, in the Left Behind book, the Lord whom you seek suddenly comes to his reconstructed temple in Jerusalem to sit on his glorious throne and rule over the nations of the world along with the Christians that he previously raptured out of the world who now exercise his acousia, his power, his potency, his authority. Well, there's so much that's absolutely biblical and right about that picture. except for one thing, and that is that according to Scripture, it already happened. And now, don't get me wrong, Second Peter, you can read it, the earth will be dissolved with fire, Scripture says so. However, on us, the end of the ages has come. That's what Scripture says in 1 Corinthians 10, Hebrews 9, and it appears that the rock has already struck the earth, Daniel prophesied this remarkable timeline in chapter nine about uh, the 70 weeks of years. It basically predicts that the rock will strike the earth sometime around 30, 33 AD, something like that, which happens to be just when Jesus is crucified. So according to Daniel's prophecy, the rock struck the earth 
a couple thousand years ago. And even now, the kingdom is growing. And according to the Gospels, the Lord has already come to his temple. And even now, the fire is purifying the sons of Levi, the priesthood of all believers. And if it's an unforgiving brightness, that's because the brightness is forgiveness himself. Forgiveness which tolerates no unforgiveness. Unforgiveness is the unforgivable sin. Well, in Matthew 21, the Lord whom you seek suddenly comes to his temple. In verse 12, he enters the temple. He overturns some tables belonging to money changers and appears to liberate some pigeons. I mean, that's cool, right? But hardly apocalyptic or what we would call apocalyptic. Maybe it is apocalyptic and whatever that word means. Verse 23, he comes back the next day, he enters, and he has this weird little dialogue with the priests, the elders, and the Pharisees about his ecousia, his power, his potency, his authority. And then he tells them about a father and two sons and a vineyard. He tells the religious folks that they are like the son who says he will do the father's will, but then doesn't do the Father's will, and so doesn't work in the vineyard. And he says that the tax collectors and the prostitutes are like the son who says he won't do the Father's will, but then repents and does do the Father's will, and works in the Father's vineyard, bearing the fruit that befits repentance. And now, now that the priests, the elders, the Pharisees are really ticked off, he tells them one more story, the story that's included in all three synoptic gospels, verse 33, hear another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. Now this is a story right out of Isaiah chapter five. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, stoned another. Again, he sent other servants more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, they will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let's, let's kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to Jesus, well, he'll, he'll put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. And you know, um, within one generation of Christ's death, the Romans utterly obliterated, utterly obliterated Jerusalem and the temple. But the Romans are not the rock. They too get hit by the rock. Remember, they're the tin toes. They get hit by the rock as well. They're not the rock and they're not the refiner's fire. That's Jesus. Next verse, Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. I just noticed this. It says right here, it is marvelous in his eyes. It's quoting the Psalms, and, and the translator put a question mark. There are no question marks in the original text. Anyway, therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its, its fruits. 
And, and I guess this is all marvelous in, in his eyes. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parable, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And so in four days, the religious folks in Israel, who supposedly delight in the Christ, deliver the Christ to the Romans so that they can take his life on a tree, in a garden, on the side of the mountain, Mount Zion. The Lord whom they sought suddenly came to his temple, and the Christ awaiters, the Christians, if you will, killed him. And he let them. And this was the Lord's doing. I mean, we're used to the story, but when you really look at it, it's so shocking and unexpected. I mean, it's no wonder that American Christians seem to have missed the fact that the rock has already hit the earth and that the Lord has already come to his temple. It's so shocking. It's so unexpected. It's so strange. I mean, it ought to shake each of us right down to the core, right down to the foundation. It ought to make us ask this question. If I would have been there that day, would I have crucified the Christ? Would you have crucified the Christ? Well, ask yourself this question. Am I a prostitute? Am I a crook or a tax collector? If so, maybe not. <laughs> but if you're a Christian, if you're kind of religious like me, yeah, may, 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 maybe so. Soren Kierkegaard taught that there are three kinds of people or three phases to life. First is the aesthetic phase. That's a person that sees the good and just takes the good that good might be some money, might be a woman's body, a man's body, might be a new BMW, might be a piano concerto, might be a philosophy, might be a theology. Tax collectors and prostitutes are probably the most basic form of the aesthetic person. In Jesus' day, a tax collector, you see, wasn't just uh, an IRS agent. I mean, they were a traitor to their country, and they were a crook and a and con men to their people. A prostitute, a prostitute was a prostitute. Well, anyway, they see the good, that it is to be desired. They see the good, take the good, and then in their hands, the good dies. And that kind of is the way with it with fruit, isn't it? You take it and it, it dies. Secondly, Kierkegaard describes the ethical phase or the ethical person. The ethical person desires the good to make one wise. Uh, they take knowledge of the good to make themselves good or at least act good. They take the law, you know, which describes the good so they can act good and then they call that act the good. The Pharisees are a great picture of, of what Kierkegaard would call the, the ethical person. Contrary to widespread modern opinion, writes Dr. McCann of Eden Theological Seminary, the, the Pharisees were not the strictest of the Jewish parties. Their intent was to interpret the law so that it could be obeyed by ordinary persons under the conditions of daily existence. In other words, they made the law practical. They explained the good 
so that people could understand the good and then do the good and think they made themselves good because they acted good, which in my experience is the very reason most people come to church. I mean, it's the reason that I, I would go to church, I think. Pastor explained the good so I can have knowledge of the good, so I can do the good and make myself good. Well, neither the aesthetic person or the ethical person is what Kierkegaard would call a, a real person or a real Christian, and that is a person of faith. For Kierkegaard, Jesus and St. Paul, the man of faith is epitomized by Abraham, who was willing to sacrifice what was absolutely everything to him. He was willing to sacrifice Isaac to God. on the foundation stone. Not because he understood the good or had knowledge of the good, but because he knew the one who is good, the good. He knew the good because the good knew him. He didn't use the good or simply act good. He trusted the good. The good is a person. Well, it's fascinating that in the presence of Jesus, the tax collectors and prostitutes saw the good, realized that they weren't good, and they surrendered to the good and bore the fruit that befits repentance. That is, they, like, gave birth to the good. It's a wild picture. But in the presence of Jesus, the religious folks saw the good, hid their hearts from the good, trying to act good, and then they crucified the good. God in flesh hanging on a tree. Romans 5.20, Paul writes that the law, which is the knowledge of the good, came in to increase the trespass. This is just an incredible sentence. I mean, if you really think about it, I think it means something like this. If you really want to be evil, okay, I don't know, maybe, you want, you just, one day you're just going to be evil. Well, you're going to have to do more than just becoming a crook or a whore. You're going to have to get religious. Ask yourself, who, who was it that crucified the Christ? Who was it that committed the greatest evil in history? Was it a raging band of tax collectors and, and harlots, or, or was it someone else? C.S. Lewis wrote this great book called The Screwtape Letters. Maybe you've read it. It's about a senior devil who is training junior devils in how to tempt a guy. He says this at a convention. He's speaking at a devil convention. All said and done, my friends, it will be an ill day for us, the devils, if what most humans mean by religion, because there is a true religion, but what most people mean by religion, if it ever vanishes from the earth, the fine flower of unholiness can only grow, grows only in the close neighborhood of the holy. Nowhere do we tempt so successfully as on the very steps of the altar. Theologian T.F. Torrance points out that revelation about God has the effect of disclosing the natural offense to God deeply embedded in the human heart, like down at the level of the foundation, so that those who receive the most knowledge of God most deeply resent God because they're not God. That is, they're not good. <laughs> you see that when you get close to God. For God alone is, is good. 
or at least when you get close to a knowledge of God. Well, Israel had more knowledge of God. They had more knowledge about the good than any nation in all of history. Well, anyway, like Paul wrote, the law came in to increase the trespass. Now, talking about religion and everything, don't get, don't get me wrong. Satan definitely tempts people to greed, crime, adultery, prostitution, taking the good because you desire the good. It's just that after a person realizes that all they've taken has died in their hands, Satan pulls out the big guns and tempts that person with religion. So he tempts you to take the good, to put it in, in Kierkegaard's phrase, that's the ascetic phase. And when you see that you're bad, he tempts you to cover the bad and pretend to be good, the ethical phase. He tempts you to self-righteousness. For some reason, in the modern American evangelical church, it seems to me we just don't talk about Pharisees that much anymore. Instead, we just seem to warn folks about prostitution, pornography, bad taxes, and criminals, and immigrants, and stuff like that. The, danger, the dangers of pleasure, the danger of just taking uh, the good. But we don't warn folks of the danger of trying to make yourself good. The danger of religion. And that's what got Jesus crucified. It wasn't a band of bunnies from the bunny ranch that, that did that. It was priests that God had charged with caring for his vineyard. Why? They wanted the son's inheritance. Well, what's the son's inheritance? Well, it's the fruit of the vineyard, right? He came to get my fruit. It's the fruit of the vineyard, and it's the vineyard. Isaiah 5, 7, the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. So the son's inheritance is um, the fruit of the vineyard, the vineyard, and even the tenants in the vineyard. Actually, according to Jesus in John 3, the son's inheritance is all things. The son's inheritance is a new heaven and a new earth filled with, with good, everything good. The son's inheritance is everything and everything good. Heaven is the son's inheritance. How many of you want heaven? Yeah, well, that's exactly what the tenants in the vineyard wanted. Exactly what the priests and the Pharisees wanted. Isn't it exactly what every child of Adam has wanted? And yet, none of us are exactly sure what it is. We just see that God has what we want. So how do we get what we want? The son's inheritance. So you know, this week, I, I kept asking myself, if I would have been there, would I have crucified the Christ? And then I started asking myself, do I crucify the Christ? Because think with me, who is Jesus the Christ? He said, I am the way. Who or what is, he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He's, he, he, he is, according to scripture, love, God is love, love, in flesh, and check this out, scripture says that I am his temple. So what do I do when the truth comes to my temple? What do I do when love comes to my temple? What do I do 
when the son comes to his vineyard, do I surrender the fruit? Well, let's just read the story in context, remembering who Jesus is, that uh, we are his temple and we are his vineyard, okay? I just want to read it in context. This is verse 33. And when the truth entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, by what acousia, what authority, what power are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority? They want his power, but they don't know what it is. Jesus answered them, I will ask you one question. If you tell me the answer, then I will also tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, which you know Malachi mentioned, the baptism of John, from where did it come? From heaven or from man? And they discussed it among themselves. They went off and discussed it among themselves, saying, if we say from heaven, he'll say to us, well, then, then he'll say to us, why then did you not believe him? But if we say from man, well, we're afraid of the crowd, for they all hold that John was a prophet. Do you notice what just happened? The truth is standing right in front of them. And they don't care about the truth. What do they care about? Using the truth, twisting the truth, manipulating the truth to get what the truth has, which is acousia, power, authority. They try to move the foundation to accommodate their house. They think they're the masters of the house. They're building a house and the foundation isn't cooperating. They're trying to move the foundation to accommodate their house. They won't surrender to the truth. They want to use the truth. Have you ever considered that the truth is a person? So when you hide from the truth, deny the truth or break the truth, well, well you hide from Jesus. You deny Jesus. Maybe you crucify Jesus. And maybe he's coming to his temple all the time. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. And he said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. What do you think? What do you think? A man had two sons, and he went to the first and said, son, go work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son and said the same. And he answered, I go, sir, but did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said, the first. Jesus, you know, who is the word of love, said to them, truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes, listen closely, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and prostitutes believed him, and even when you saw it, saw how they believed, how they repented, you did not afterwards change your minds and believe him. Now, this is all crazy because you know about tax collectors and prostitutes, okay? Tax collectors and prostitutes use people. And so what do they do? They turn people into things and then those people die to them because things can't love. Tax collectors and prostitutes, well then don't love love. They use love and love dies. But, 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 when love in the flesh came to them, they recognized their sin and repented, bearing the fruit that befits repentance, Matthew 3, as John the Baptist called it. They repented and bore fruit. Remember the tax collector at the front of the temple falls on his knees, beating his chest, crying, I'm one worthy. I guess that's, I guess that's fruit. Or Zacchaeus comes down the tree and he freely gives away his possessions, rejoicing at giving stuff away. That's uh, the repentance that I guess he's talking about. 
about or the, or the prostitute, remember, who dumps out all that ointment and washes Jesus' feet with her tears and, and her hair. They saw their sin and surrendered to grace and bore the fruit that befits repentance. They believed in God's word of love, Jesus. So, tax collectors and prostitutes use people and turn them into things. Religious folks often use God and turn him into their thing so they can get his things. Akusia. They've been doing so since the dawn of time. They turn love into law. The law describes love, right? But love is a person. The law is a thing. God is love, and, and love is the good. Law describes the good. That's why love fully fills or fulfills the law. So religious folks often use God the way tax collectors and prostitutes use people, but they have a hard time seeing how they use God because they use their knowledge of God to hide from God and justify themselves before God. Let me put it another way. They use the knowledge of the good to hide from the good and justify themselves before the good. So anyway, when love comes to your temple, do you ever turn them into a law? And then use the law to hide yourself and justify yourself saying things like, well, who's my neighbor? That, they're not my, who's my neighbor? I tithe mint, rue, dill, and I don't be talking to me about mercy. Or, or maybe even sometimes you say something like this, leave me alone, Jesus. I can't be forgiven. I know the law. If you turn love into a law to hide yourself, to justify yourself, or even to condemn yourself, well, you don't delight in the law. You probably despise the law for you hate what it describes, which is love. And God is love. When you reduce love to law, maybe, maybe you, you crucify love. Maybe this is way bigger than, than we ever imagined. Well, it shouldn't surprise us that when truth in himself came to his temple, it was the religious folks that nailed him to a tree in a garden. <laughs> they killed him. Next verse, hear another parable, says Jesus, and now he tells the story of the tenants in the vineyard that we're looking at. Verse 37, finally the master sent his son to them, saying, they will respect my son. Uh, maybe that's a prophecy. Anyway, he says, they will, respect, they will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. So, so what is Jesus' inheritance? Well, it's the fruit of the vineyard. That's wine. Um, they, they used to refer to the juice as the blood of the grape. The wine is blood. Paul writes that the fruit of the Spirit, which is, uh, you know, the Spirit of Jesus, he says the fruit of the Spirit is love. Well, God is love. And love poured out is, is grace. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. Good, good. Hey, do you ever think to yourself, because I've been good, I deserve something? Like a paycheck. As if goodness was a thing that you created and then you could go around bargaining with. 
Patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faith. Have you ever thought that because of your faith, you deserve something? Like salvation. As if, you know, you created your faith and you go around bargaining with God in order to get his stuff. Goodness, gentleness, faith, self-control, control. You know, you, you, you can't control yourself with yourself, right? So self-control has to be something that you didn't create, that you didn't make. It's, it's like a gift. Uh, Jesus said, Jesus said this, I am the vine, you are the branches, abide in me that you may bear much fruit. Abide in me. The fruit comes from the life in, in the vine. The life is in the blood, the wine is the blood. All fruit then is the fruit of God's mercy. So you get the picture. The good in you is the life of Christ in you. He said, I am the life. So when you call your life my life, and you claim the fruit is your own, aren't you taking the son's inheritance as your own? And haven't you taken his life as your own? as if he was like fruit hanging on some tree and you just came along and took it. You're not even sure when that happened or how that happened. Maybe whenever you manipulate the truth, use love or feel the least bit proud of yourself as if you created yourself, you take the life of Christ on the tree. And when you take his life, you destroy your own life because he is the life. I mean, maybe the Bible means that stuff. He is your life. Your life is his life. You are his inheritance. And now get this. He is yours. You are his and he is, is yours. He is your life. And, and he's come to the vineyard to give you all things. Romans 8, that's what Paul says. If he, gave us, if he freely gave us his son, will he not give us all things with him? He's come to the vineyard to give you himself and all things. He's your life and he's come to the vineyard to give you all things, but he can't give you all things if you take all things, like a crook or a harlot. And he certainly can't give you all things if you think you have earned all things like a Pharisee. And that's the darkest lie of all, isn't it? Think about it, that you could earn something, that you could deserve something. That you could earn, what could you earn anything with? You have nothing to earn it with. You didn't create you. You see, a self-righteous person is a crook and a harlot, except that that person has convinced themselves that they're not. In other words, they believe that they are their own creator, and Savior. They think, I am salvation. So when God is salvation, shows up at their temple, what happens? They're threatened, and they're jealous, and they take his life on a tree. They think, I am salvation, and so they hate God as salvation and don't delight when God saves. Uh, unless he's saving someone that they have already judged worthy of salvation and no one's worthy of salvation or it's not salvation. They think I am salvation and so hate God is salvation and can't know salvation for God himself is salvation. God is heaven. 
You see, God is not only, not only does he have what you want, he is who you want. You just don't know it. God is love. Well, anyway, they think I am salvation, and so they hate God as salvation, which, you know, forms a name, and the name is Yeshua, Yeshuata, in English, Jesus. Jesus is the foundation. Self-righteous, religious people hate their own foundation. Jesus is the word of God that creates all things out of no thing, and so everything, everything, everything comes to you as grace. The self-righteous and the religious hate their own creation and end up wishing for everyone's desecration because they hate grace. It burns them like a wall of unforgiving forgiveness. It's not that they will never enter the kingdom, but that they will have to watch the tax collectors and the prostitutes enter first and that'll burn. Just like Jerusalem will have to watch Sodom and Samaria restored in her midst, as Ezekiel said, and that'll burn. The fruit of the vineyard is wine that is blood, blood that is fire. It's mercy, and it burns arrogance, for it is the fire, the consuming fire, that is God. The self-righteous are jealous. They're jealous of Jesus' power, but they don't know what it is. For you see, it's not the control of God, it's surrender to God. So they try to use love to create themselves instead of surrendering to love so they can be created. They try to take the good to create themselves instead of receiving the good so they can be created. They think, I am salvation. So when God is salvation, comes to their temple, they're threatened and envious, and so take his life on the tree, body broken and bloodshed. They take his life on the tree, and he gives his life on the tree, body broken and bloodshed. And that's that's when the rock, hewn by no human hand, hits the earth and begins to grow, toppling the principalities and the powers of this world. It's the kingdom of God. That's when the foundation shakes, and the temple that men have built begins to crumble, and the temple that God builds is built up upon the the foundation, uh, the foundation that is Christ. That's when and where Christ purifies the sons of Levi that they may make offerings in righteousness. That's when we begin to love God in, in freedom. That's when the vineyard becomes fruitful beyond measure as Christ tramples the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, transforming all of our sins into grace, into into blood, a river of blood that is mercy. His life is in the blood. That's when and where we're all exposed as crooks and harlots, and that's when and where he turns crooks into disciples and harlots into his bride. That's when we stop using God and we begin to worship God for we see that he's good, and he gives us himself. The law came in to increase the trespass, writes Paul, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, and it was all according to his plan. For we are his bride, and he is 
our groom, and from the foundation of the world, from first to last, from start to finish, he has longed to show us the depths of his love so we would trust him who is love and surrender to love, being filled with love and bearing the fruit that is love. Next verse, Jesus says, and they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? Uh, The religious leaders, the religious leaders say to Jesus, he'll put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give them the fruits in their seasons. Jesus said to them, have you never read the scriptures? The stone that the builder rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous, marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to people producing its fruits. Now some argue that means that the kingdom has been taken away from Israel and given to like Presbyterians or or Lutherans. I think it'd be more accurate to say something like the kingdom is taken away from those who believe that they can justify themselves with works of the flesh according to the law and given to old tax collectors and, and, and harlots who are so overwhelmed with the grace of God that they just can't help but worship him with everything that they have and everything they are. They can't help but love him with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength and their neighbor as themselves. And that means then that if you want to enter the kingdom, you must admit, you must confess that you're an old harlot. And that your righteous deeds, well, they were really all just an act. You must die to the harlot. You must die to the act. And that will only happen when you see that Christ Jesus has already made himself your groom and made you his bride. In fact, he's already told you, you just haven't believed it. Several years ago, Susan and I, We saw this movie that I certainly wouldn't recommend for family viewing. It was titled Original Sin. And actually, it was a brilliant expose of original sin. Antonio Banderas, he plays this wealthy Cuban plantation owner, not a vineyard owner, but a plantation owner named Luis Varga. He sends away for an American mail-order bride named uh, Julia. I I think it's uh, Julia Russell. Well, on the passage across the Atlantic, this harlot, in cahoots with a crook, this harlot learns of Julia's plans to be married to Luis, and so this harlot and the crook, they dispose of Julia, and the harlot takes her place. Her name is Bonnie Castle, played by Angelina Jolie. Well, Luis marries uh, Julia, or Bonnie, who he thinks is Julia, the moment she gets off the boat. And he respects her. He's uh, wonderful uh, to her. He falls madly in love with her. After several months, when her act is about to be exposed by circumstance, Bonnie, posing as Julia, plans to kill Luis and take all his inheritance take all his possessions, and run away with this evil lover who treats her like a slave. In this scene, they they sit at a a table. The evil lover who's enslaved her is waiting outside for a signal. She's given her bridegroom a cup of coffee, and the cup is filled with poison. Then she, she realizes, she begins to realize that he's, he knows, he's found out. It, it was all an, an act, and he knows that she plans to kill him. 
This is what it looks like when the rock hits the earth. This is what it looks like when the Lord suddenly comes to his temple. This is what it looks like when Jesus purifies the sons of Levi and we stop using love and begin to surrender to love. This is what it looks like when God turns Israel, the harlot, into his bride and his vineyard begins to bear the fruit that is purchased with his very own blood. Like a play. All of it. Lies. From the moment I met you. Not all of it, no. Do you laugh on me, behind my back, the two of you? Do you laugh on me for how stupid I have been, how... how blind? No. Laugh now when I tell you this. I loved you, Julia. Julia is not here. Julia is dead. Laugh. And I tell you that I still love you. No. No, not me. You don't love me. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. You. Not Julia Russell. Not Bonnie Castle. You. I love you as I know you. Because I know you. As you are, good and bad, better and worse. <laughs> I told you this already, but you didn't believe me. Tonight you will. To us. A short life, an exciting life. Don't do this. No other one. No other love but you. From first to last. Start to finish. Don't change, Julia. Don't ever change. No, no, no! revived as the harlot dies and the act dies and the bride is resurrected the bride that he knew uh, that she always was that he told her that she was and they lived happily ever after <laughs> who'd have thought of such a story <laughs> well anyway look we're 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 at a table we came here today to sit down at a table 
He died once and for all, for, for every sin, for all time. And you see, we've all twisted the truth, haven't we? We've all turned the love in, into law. We've all taken his life as, as our own. I mean, we're all, we're all con men and, and harlots. We've delivered him up to death time and time and time again, and every time he drinks our poison and his body is broken. And so he took the bread and he broke it, saying, this is my body given to you. I want you to do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup and he said, this cup is the covenant in my blood. It's a marriage covenant. He is the covenant. This is the foundation. Do you see this? This is the foundation. He is the foundation. You don't deserve him. How could you deserve him? How could you deserve anything? You don't own him. You have taken him. Do you see him? Don't use him. Don't manipulate him. Don't twist him, just see him and believe him and worship him. And we will be built up into his house. 